0: The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. When we last left our hero, Percy Bysshe Shelley, he was in his early to mid-twenties, longing for the young Wordsworth, the poet of nature, the lone star who had deserted his earlier self. The question of what Shelley would become in old age is one the world never had answered, as he died before he ever reached the age of thirty. And yet, his poetry demands a second part to his episode. In part two, we pick up at the shores of Lake Geneva, where he's with his lover, Mary Godwin, eventually Mary Shelley. We'll look at the last five years of his life, focusing on his major poems, which are also some of the English language's major poems, and the dramatic details of his death. Percy Bysshe Shelley, The Mature Years, today on The History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the podcast brought to you by your humble podcaster, AKA Jack Wilson. This is a good one today. We have about five years left of Shelley's life in which he wrote some truly outstanding poetry which will be our focus, the poems themselves, here's what I've done. I've taken a poem, or sometimes two, from each of the years that Shelley has left. We'll start, well, we're not going to start with a poem. We'll start with this prose. We're going to wrap up 1816 and launch into 1817 with the preface that Shelley wrote for his soon-to-be wife's Mary Shelley's book. Not her first book. She wrote a travel book before this one, but certainly it's her most famous book you know it and love it, Frankenstein or the modern Prometheus, Shelley wrote a preface for it. The Shelley's were in Marlowe at the time, such a great literary name, from Christopher Kitt Marlowe, the playwright, to The Speaker in Heart of Darkness, by Joseph Conrad, to Raymond Chandler's L.A. Private Eye. The Shelley's had been married at the end of 1816 on December 30th, and they spent much of 1817 in Marlow, bedraggled by a court case as they were trying to get custody over Shelley's children with his first wife. Shelley met Lee Hunt and John Keats, took some trips to London, met with them a few times. Shelley wrote some political pamphlets and signed them The Hermit of Marlow. By the time the custody case ended, it was 1818. The Shelleys were in Italy. And Percy Shelley would never again return to England. He had only three or so years left to live. Shelley, at this point in his life, began to turn inward. In a sense, he began to turn to art, his art. He cared about politics, still cared, but he was trying to affect the world through poetry, now changing minds through verse. Poets, as he famously wrote around this time, are the unacknowledged legislators of the world, actually, When he first wrote that, it was poets and philosophers are the unacknowledged legislators. By 1821, a year before his death, he had amended that phrase to just poets. We're going to do a full episode on this essay at some point. It's such a classic. So for 1818, we will present two poems, stanzas written in dejection near Naples and Ozymandias, maybe his most famous poem. In 1819, we'll have Ode to the West Wind and also A Cloud. Wait, did I just say A Cloud? The Cloud. And in 1820, we will come to To a Skylark. We'll present that for you. And then we'll talk about Shelley and Keats. So we can tee up 1821's Adonaius or an elegy on the death of John Keats. We'll also have the poem Music When Soft Voices Die from that year. In 1822, the year of Shelley's death, we will tell that harrowing story and we'll look at a pair of poems that were published posthumously. The Waning Moon and Art Thou Pale for Weariness. That was 1824 when those came out when Mary Shelley had taken over the stewardship of finding Shelley's unpublished works, putting them out, which she continued for the rest of her life. So, here we go. Let's take a quick break and return with the final five years in the life of Percy Bysshe Shelley. Hey, grownups. The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Follow the Cat in the Hatcast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hatcast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. As we discussed last time, the Shelleys traveled to Lake Geneva in 1816, where they rendezvoused with Byron and his doctor, John Polidori. The group whiled away some stormy nights by telling each other ghost stories with Frankenstein as a result. Let's hear Shelleys' preface to the 1818 edition of that book, Frankenstein, written in 1817. I mean, the preface was written in 1817, recalling those days in 1816, and we'll also hear not just his recollection of the circumstances of writing, but we'll hear his take on this modern Promethean tale. One quick note before we begin, he refers to Dr. Darwin in this preface. That's not Charles Darwin, who was not yet on the scene, but Erasmus Darwin, who was Charles Darwin's grandfather. Erasmus was also a scientist, so highly esteemed as a scientist that he was asked to be George III's personal doctor. He turned down the chance to be physician to the king, opting instead for a life of designs, inventions, and experiments, including some experiments that Shelley was discussing with Byron and that Mary Shelley, who overheard the conversation, drew upon When she was coming up with the ideas for Frankenstein. Here we go. Frankenstein, the preface. The event on which this fiction is founded has been supposed by Dr. Darwin and some of the physiological writers of Germany as not of impossible occurrence. I shall not be supposed as according the remotest degree of serious faith to such an imagination, yet, in assuming it as the basis of a work of fancy, I have not considered myself as merely weaving a series of supernatural terrors. The event on which the interest of the story depends is exempt from the disadvantages of a mere tale of specters or enchantment. It was recommended by the novelty of the situations which it develops, and, however impossible as a physical fact, affords a point of view to the imagination for the delineating of human passions more comprehensive and commanding than any which the ordinary relations of existing events can yield. I have thus endeavored to preserve the truth of the elementary principles of human nature, while I have not scrupled to innovate upon their combinations. The Iliad, the tragic poetry of Greece, Shakespeare in The Tempest, and Midsummer Night's Dream, and most especially Milton in Paradise Lost, conform to this rule. And the most humble novelist, who seeks to confer or receive amusement from his labors, may, without presumption, apply to prose fiction a license, or rather a rule, from the adoption of which so many exquisite combinations of human feeling have resulted in the highest specimens of poetry. The circumstance on which my story rests was suggested in casual conversation. It was commenced partly as a source of amusement and partly as an expedient for exercising any untried resources of mind. Other motives were mingled with these as the work proceeded. I am by no means indifferent to the manner in which whatever moral tendencies exist in the sentiments or characters it contains shall affect the reader. Yet my chief concern in this respect has been limited to the avoiding of the enervating effects of the novels of the present day and to the exhibition of the amiableness of domestic affection and the excellence of universal virtue. The opinions which naturally spring from the character and situation of the hero are by no means to be conceived as existing always in my own conviction, nor is any inference justly to be drawn from the following pages as prejudicing any philosophical doctrine of whatever kind." It is a subject also of additional interest to the author that this story was begun in the majestic region where the scene is principally laid, and in society which cannot cease to be regretted. I passed the summer of 1816 in the environs of Geneva. The season was cold and rainy, and in the evenings we crowded around a blazing wood fire, and occasionally amused ourselves with some German stories of ghosts which happened to fall into our hands these tales excited in us a playful desire of imitation. Two other friends, a tale from the pen of one of whom would be far more acceptable to the public than anything I can ever hope to produce, and myself agreed to write each a story, founded on some supernatural occurrence. The weather, however, suddenly became serene, and my two friends left me on a journey among the Alps and lost in the magnificent scenes which they present, all memory of their ghostly visions. The following tale is the only one which has been completed. Marlowe, September 1817. Shelley also had a hand in the editing of Frankenstein. I've never studied his edits myself, but I know there's some controversy about them. Some people say that he rewrote lots of the book and they can see his fingerprints all over it. They kind of attribute to him a a ghostwriting level of involvement. I think the general consensus is that that view overstates what Shelley did, that actually what he contributed was more along the lines of encouragement in the first instance, and then some line edits, words here and there. On the scale of editor On the spectrum of editor to ghostwriter, he was much closer to editor. Then the ideas, the characters, the scenes, the bulk of the prose was all Mary. But Percy clearly appreciated the book. He seems to have been a very unjealous person when it came to writing, as we'll see later in our story as well. He wrote generously about Keats and Byron and Mary Shelley, seemingly happy in their success happy to have their poetry, happy to have this book, Frankenstein. It's a good way to live your life, hoping that those around you find success. Rising tides will lift all ships. And for someone who cared about poetry, as he did, who believed it could change the world and the world was in need of change, he was glad to have good books and good verse making their way into the world. Which was not to say that he was always happy. Our next poem Is stanzas written in dejection near Naples from eighteen eighteen, the year of its publication. In spite of his love for Italy and the joy that the scenery and the history gave him, this is a woe is me, poor me the poet kind of poem. The Shelleys, Percy and Mary were having some difficulties in their marriage. They were becoming estranged from one another, which didn't help Shelley's state of mind. But I think also that life was severe enough that Shelley could feel it, could savor the ups and downs, savor the ups and wallow in the downs, let's say. Anyone who wants to live and live hard and write about it will know what this is like. Sometimes sadness is called for and even embraced as a subject, as a worthy condition to be in. It's part of life. It's part of humanity. You deal with loss. You deal with setbacks. You deal with disappointments. And above all, for these two, you deal with grief. Let's hear what Shelley does with his melancholy, how he transmutes it into his art. Listen in particular as I read these lines for his thoughts on himself, surrounded by nature, very romantic era kind of position for the poet to be in, and listen for what it means to be alive and to be a poet. Questions like, will anyone remember me? Did I matter? What have I done so far with my life? That's running through these lines. Stanza's written in dejection near Naples by Percy Bysshe Shelley. The sun is warm. The sky is clear. The waves are dancing fast and bright. Blue isles and snowy mountains wear the purple noon's transparent might. The breath of the moist earth is light around its unexpanded buds. Like many a voice of one delight, the winds, the birds, the ocean floods. The city's voice itself is soft, like solitudes. I see the deep's untrampled floor with green and purple seaweeds strown. I see the waves upon the shore, like light dissolved in star showers, thrown. I sit upon the sands alone, The lightning of the noontide ocean is flashing round me, and a tone arises from its measured motion. How sweet did any heart now share in my emotion! Alas, I have nor hope nor health, nor peace within, nor calm around, nor that content, surpassing wealth, the sage in meditation found, and walked with inward glory crowned nor fame, nor power, nor love, nor leisure, others I see whom these surround, smiling they live and call life pleasure. To me that cup has been dealt in another measure. Yet now despair itself is mild, even as the winds and waters are, I could lie down like a tired child and weep away the life of care which I have borne and yet must bear till death-like sleep might steal on me, and I might feel in the warm air my cheek grow cold, and hear the sea breathe o'er my dying brain its last monotony. Some might lament that I were cold, as I, when this sweet day is gone, which my lost heart, too soon grow old, insults with this untimely moan. They might lament, For I am one whom men love not, and yet regret, unlike this day, which, when the sun shall on its stainless glory set, will linger, though enjoyed, like joy in memory yet. Hmm. It's good stuff. Now, if Shelley was worried that he would not last, he soon put those fears to rest with our next one, which is about lasting and also is lasting. It's about lasting, and it is lasting. Ozymandias. This is a sonnet, 14 lines. We did an entire episode just on the sonnet form. It's so famous and important in English language literature. Shelley's has the slightly unusual rhyme scheme. This poem, Ozymandias, has the the rhyme scheme. Try to figure it out sometime. It's A-B-A-B-A-C-D-C-E-D-E-F-E-F. Or you could say it's A B A B A C D C E D E F E F. What does that do? Well, it disrupts our expectations. For one thing, we're used to, well, Shakespeare gave us the, the classic paradigm A B A B C D C D E F E F G G. That's Shakespeare. There are many other variants, of course, but listen to Shelley's again. A, B, A, B. Okay, that's good. That sets it up. That's Shakespearean, right? So what comes next? C, D, C, D. No. It goes A, B, A, B, then A, C, D, C. It's that way throughout. Atypical. The rhymes don't come exactly when we expect. So we're on uncertain ground, perhaps. That's relevant for the mood here in the poem, appropriate for the subject matter, which is about uncertain ground, the sands sloping away. It's about the vicissitudes of life and reputation and legacy. Even the best laid plans go awry. Time and chance happeneth to us all. Don't try to package things up neatly in your rhymes. They'll be broken and blasted by circumstance. In a long enough window, long enough time frame, we all die, we all fade. Nature and its lightning and wind and rains and beating suns and growth and decay will eventually erode all of us, ourselves, our monuments, our legacies. So here we go with a wonderful poem, Ozymandias. This is a, I met a guy, had a great conversation with him, and here's a wise reflection on history, mortality fortune and fortune's folly kind of poem. Remember, too, that Shelley was surrounded by Italy and its glorious ruins. When composing this, the poem, however, is set in Egypt. Ozymandias is the Greek name for the pharaoh, Ramesses II. As it happens, or as it happened, I should say, the British Museum had recently acquired a head and torso of a statue of Ramesses Second, which Shelley probably had not seen, but had likely read about. Here we go, Ozymandias, by Percy Bysshe Shelley. I met a traveler from an antique land who said, Two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them, on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command, tell that its sculptor well those passions read, which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them, and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal these words appear, My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair." nothing beside remains. Around the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. What a poem. What are the heroes of this poem? What stands out to you? For me, it's a few things. The shattered visage or face that still shows the personage of the statue of the speaker of this mighty king, mighty pharaoh, Ozymandias. It still shows a frown, a wrinkled lip, and a sneer of cold command. Sneer of cold command is one of those phrases that make you want to pull out your quill and start writing words of genius. Summon the muse, if you have one. All of that on a broken statue lying on the ground, half-sunk in the desert. How sneering you were when you were alive, Pharaoh. Rameses II, when you had the statue commissioned, when you were saying things like, look on my works, ye mighty and despair. That's a line for the ages. That, that line is as sonorous and as powerful as anything you'll find in poetry. I'm not sure if Shelley invented this inscription or if it's an example of found poetry. Either way, it's a glorious line to have in a glorious poem. And then to finish that absolute thunderbolt of a line with the gentle receding winds and sand, nothing beside remains. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. You can hear the loud, proud voice booming through the desert. But after 3,000 years, even the loudest and Proudest of voices fade away toward silence. Their echoes are so quiet. They can be almost comic now. No one mighty will despair at seeing this broken, crumbling statue. They'll, they'll regard it and sign a requisition to have it hauled off to some museum, perhaps with a wry chuckle at the inscription. And then Look at what Shelley does after that inscription. Nothing beside remains. That's the throat clearing. That's a half a line. That's the pivot. That's the ironic twist. Round the decay of that colossal wreck. It's a wreck now. Not mighty. A huge falling. An enormous, gigantic piece of garbage now. No dignity left. A disaster sight. The hubris of it. Makes it a colossal wreck, not just a a meager wreck, tiny wreck, a colossal wreck. And then the pivot to time eroding, even the mighty, even wrecks, even colossal wrecks. Boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. Boy, is that, oh, that's so beautiful. Boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. You, Ramesses Second, were huge, a monument, and now you're nothing. The earth is still here, though. The desert, the lone and level sands, wind passing over them, sunlight blasting the grains of sand and stars beaming down on them at night, and it all stretches away, smooth and getting smoother with time, level, lonely. As humans crop up and disappear, And the world endures with them and without them. Mm, Simply a gorgeous poem. Our next poem was written in the wake of the Peterloo Massacre, which Shelley also wrote about in his poem The Mask of Anarchy. More explicitly in that poem than this one, though I, I like this one better. You probably do too. Ode to the West Wind from 1819. This is his I'm a child of nature, I'm going to be a moonbeam, swallow me and shoot me out of your fingertips. Kind of a poem, in this case. It's a poet longing to be something that can be carried along by a wind, sort of in the way that a sound is carried. It's a dream of a poet, every poet perhaps, in particular a poet who wants his poetry to matter, because although the mature Shelley had turned to art and was no longer throwing pamphlets down from his balcony on the peasants, trying trying to get them to rise up. He still had this desire to bring about social change, revolution, social transformation. What is our role in all of this? That was a question he asked all of his life. The Peterloo Massacre had been a part of a a series of protests by individuals who were seeking reform in the aftermath of the Napoleonic Wars. England was industrializing, society was changing, and advocates for reform urged the nation to adopt, for example, universal suffrage. Which ordinarily, I see that phrase, and I think of women getting the right to vote. But at this time, it was working men. The argument was that they should be allowed to vote. Apparently they weren't. Kind of surprised me. I didn't realize that. But the working men, I'm not a—I'm not an English historian, working men were not allowed to vote. And the argument was that if they were, it would lead to better working conditions, fairer taxes, a better allocation of public resources, and so on. Everyone who is governed should have a say in the governance. It's not such a radical idea today, but it was radical to the authorities at the time who turned up to see a crowd that some have estimated at 100,000 people. Not so much a protest as kind of a festival they were having. And then a cavalry made up of volunteer soldiers who were protecting the status quo rushed into the crowd, their sabers drawn, and they slaughtered 10 to 20 people and injured hundreds more. Shelley heard the news of this and funneled what he called his torrent of indignation into his poem The Mask of Anarchy. In Ode to the West Wind, he's more oblique about reform. He was living east of England in Florence, and the West Wind was the one that he viewed as connecting him to his home country. Viewed or envisioned, maybe I should say, imagined, would connect him to his home country. It would; The wind would carry him back there to help fight for change, or carry his words there, or his thoughts of support. There's a reference in here, as I read this poem, to maenads which are again drawn from ancient Greek culture. These are the female followers of Dionysus, the god of wine and fertility. Ode to the West Wind by Percy Bysshe Shelley. One. O wild west wind, thou breath of autumn's being, thou from whose unseen presence the leaves dead are driven like ghosts from an enchanter fleeing, yellow and black and pale and hectic red, Pestilence-stricken multitudes, O thou who chariotest to their dark wintry bed the winged seeds, where they lie cold and low, each like a corpse within its grave, until thine azure sister of the spring shall blow her clarion o'er the dreaming earth, and fill, driving sweet buds like flocks to feed in air, with living hues and odors, plain and hill. Wild spirit which art moving everywhere, destroyer and preserver, here, oh, here. Two, thou on whose stream mid the steep sky's commotion loose clouds like earth's decaying leaves are shed, shook from the tangled boughs of heaven and ocean, angels of rain and lightning, there are spread on the blue surface of thine airy surge like the bright hair uplifted from the head of some fierce maned, even from the dim verge of the horizon to the zenith's height, the locks of the approaching storm, thou dirge of the dying year to which this closing night will be the dome of a vast sepulchre, vaulted with all thy congregated might of vapors, from whose solid atmosphere Black rain and fire and hail will burst. Oh, here. Three. Thou who didst waken from his summer dreams the blue Mediterranean where he lay, lulled by the coil of his crystalline streams, beside a pumice in by his bay, and saw in sleep old palaces and towers quivering within the waves intenser day all overgrown with azure moss and flowers, so sweet the sense faints, picturing them. Thou, for whose path the Atlantic's level powers cleave themselves into chasms, while far below the sea-blooms and the oozy woods which wear the sepless foliage of the ocean, know thy voice, and suddenly grow gray with fear, and tremble and despoil themselves. Oh, hear! 4. If I were a dead leaf thou mightest bear, if I were a swift cloud to fly with thee, a wave to pant beneath thy power and share the impulse of thy strength, only less free than thou, O uncontrollable, if even I were as in my boyhood, and could be the comrade of thy wanderings over heaven, as then when to outstrip thy skyy speed scarce seemed a vision, I would ne'er have striven as thus with thee in prayer in my sore need. O lift me as a wave, a leaf, a cloud. I fall upon the thorns of life, I bleed. A heavy weight of ours has chained and bowed one to like thee, Tameless and swift and proud. 5. Make me thy lyre, even as the forest is. What if my leaves are falling like its own? The tumult of thy mighty harmonies will take from both a deep autumnal tone, sweet though in sadness. Be thou, spirit fierce, my spirit. Be thou me, impetuous one. Drive my dead thoughts over the universe like withered leaves to quicken a new birth. And by the incantation of this verse, scatter, As from an unextinguished hearth, ashes and sparks, my words among mankind, be through my lips to unawakened earth, the trumpet of a prophecy. O wind, if winter comes, can spring be far behind? Although... Shelley had turned to poetry and was living abroad, it would be a mistake to see him as living a quiet, reclusive life. His life in these years was full of those ups and downs. I mentioned earlier, Percy and Mary Shelley's child, William, died in June of 1819. Their marriage was not always smooth, and Percy's views on free love probably didn't help. He also had a child, perhaps, with another woman who may may have been Mary's stepsister, Claire. It's never been definitively proven who either the mother or the father were. What's known is this. Percy registered the child as being his in public records, and Mary was listed as the mother, though this came as a surprise to Mary. She definitely was not the mother. We don't know if Shelley or someone else was the father. It's been speculated that maybe it was Shelley's child with Claire or with a servant, Or perhaps it was Byron's child with someone, and and Shelley claimed the child. Or it's been also suggested that Shelley may have adopted a local orphan nobody knows for sure. As 1819 turned to 1820, Shelley also wrote what might be his masterpiece, the lengthy work Prometheus Unbound, a lyrical drama, which is drawn from Greek myths, surprise, surprise, and looks at Prometheus's defiance of the gods, his seizure of fire, and the gift of it to humanity, for which Zeus punished Prometheus severely. Shelley picks up the story as Prometheus is released from captivity. Although it's possible for this work to be performed, it rarely is, and in fact Shelley wrote it to be read, not staged. In any case, we're going to focus instead And two of his other works, from this general time period, To a Skylark, and The Cloud. We'll start with The Cloud, written in late 1819 or early 1820, Shelley now being in his mid to late 20s. It's a remarkable act of empathy. This is his I Will Disappear Myself as Poet and Inhabit the Mind-slash-Being-of-A-Cloud poem. Listen for the wild visions given from a cloud's view on high up there in the firmament. One imagines Shelley lying on his back in some Tuscan meadow, gazing upward at the clouds as they drifted o'erhead, maybe doing that all day and night and coming up with everything the cloud would experience, and then igniting those thoughts with some poetic visions. One quick note, a cenotaph, you'll hear that word, is a monument to the dead. The Cloud, by Percy Bysshe Shelley. I bring fresh showers for the thirsting flowers from the seas and the streams. I bear light shade for the leaves when laid in their noonday dreams. From my wings are shaken the dews that waken, the sweet buds every one. When rocked to rest on their mother's breast As she dances about the sun. I wield the flail of the lashing hail And whiten the green plains under, And then again I dissolve it in rain And laugh as I pass in thunder. I sift the snow on the mountains below And their great pines groan aghast, And all the night tis my pillow white While I sleep in the arms of the blast. Sublime on the towers of my sky bowers, lightning my pilot sits. In a cavern under is fettered the thunder, it struggles and howls It fits. Over earth and ocean, with gentle motion, this pilot is guiding me, lured by the love of the genii that move in the depths of the purple sea. Over the rills and the crags and the hills, Over the lakes and the plains, Wherever he dream under mountain or stream, The spirit he loves remains. And I all the while bask in heaven's blue smile, Whilst he is dissolving in rains. The sanguine sunrise with his meteor eyes, And his burning plumes outspread, Leaps on the back of my sailing rack, when the morning star shines dead. As on the jag of a mountain crag, Which an earthquake rocks and swings, An eagle alit one moment may sit In the light of its golden wings. And when sunset may breathe From the lit sea beneath Its ardors of rest and of love, And the crimson pall of Eve may fall From the depth of heaven above, With wings folded I rest, on mine airy nest, As still as a brooding dove. That orbit maiden, With white fire laden, Whom mortals call the moon, Glides glimmering o'er My fleece-like floor, By the midnight breezes strewn. And wherever the beat Of her unseen feet, Which only the angels hear, May have broken the woof Of my tent's thin roof, The star's peep behind her and peer. And I laugh to see them whirl and flee like a swarm of golden bees when I widen the rent in my wind-built tent till calm the rivers, lakes, and seas. Like strips of the sky fallen through me on high are each paved with the moon and these. I bind the sun's throne with a burning zone and the moons with a girdle of pearl. The volcanoes are dim, and the stars reel and swim when the whirlwinds my banner unfurl. From cape to cape, with a bridge-like shape, over a torrent sea, sunbeam-proof I hang like a roof, the mountains its columns be. The triumphal arch through which I march with hurricane, fire, and snow, when the powers of the air are chained to my chair is the million-colored bow. The sphere-fire above its soft colors wove, while the moist earth was laughing below. I am the daughter of earth and water, and the nursling of the sky. I pass through the pores of the ocean and shores. I change, but I cannot die. For after the rain, when with never a stain, the pavilion of heaven is bare, And the winds and sunbeams with their convex gleams build up the blue dome of air. I silently laugh at my own cenotaph and out of the caverns of rain like a child from the womb like a ghost from the tomb I arise and unbuild it again. Hmm. That is The Cloud. Let's take a quick break and come back with to a skylark. The Skylark, this is Shelley's, I'm drawn to you because we share the same vocation, but you are pure and I cannot compete. Mary Shelley later recalled the origins of this one. She was there. According to her, she and Percy were on a walk in northwest Italy. When inspiration struck him, she said, quote, It was on a beautiful summer evening while wandering among the lanes whose myrtle hedges were the bowers of the fireflies that we heard the caroling of the Skylark, end quote. To a Skylark from 1820 by Percy Bysshe Shelley. Hail to thee, blithe spirit, bird thou never wert, that from heaven or near it pourest thy full heart in profuse strains of unpremeditated art. Higher still and higher from the earth thou springest like a cloud of fire, the blue deep thou wingest, and singing still dost soar, and soaring ever singest. In the golden lightning of the sunken sun, o'er which clouds are brightening, thou dost float and run, like an unbodied joy whose race is just begun. The pale purple even melts around thy flight like a star of heaven, in the broad daylight thou art unseen but yet I hear thy shrill delight. Keen as are the arrows of that silver sphere whose intense lamp narrows in the white dawn clear until we hardly see, we feel that it is there. All the earth and air with thy voice is loud as when night is bare. From one lonely cloud the moon rains out her beams and heaven is overflowed. What thou art, we know not what is most like thee from rainbow clouds. There flow not drops so bright to see as from thy presence showers a rain of melody. Like a poet hidden in the light of thought, singing hymns unbidden till the world is wrought to sympathy with hopes and fears it heeded not. Like a high born maiden in a palace tower. Soothing her love-laden soul in secret hour, With music sweet as love, which overflows her bower. Like a glow-worm golden in a dell of dew, Scattering unbeholden its aerial hue, Among the flowers and grass which screen it from the view. Like a rose embowered in its own green leaves, By warm winds deflowered, Till the scent it gives makes faint with too much sweet THOSE HEAVY-WINGED THIEVES, SOUND OF VERNAL SHOWERS ON THE TWINKLING GRASS, RAIN-AWAKENED FLOWERS, ALL THAT EVER WAS JOYOUS AND CLEAR AND FRESH, THY MUSIC DOTH SURPASS. TEACH US, SPRITE OR BIRD, WHAT SWEET THOUGHTS ARE THINE. I HAVE NEVER HEARD PRAISE OF LOVE OR WINE THAT PANTED FORTH A FLOOD OF RAPTURE, SO DIVINE chorus, hymenial, or triumphal chant, matched with thine, would be all but an empty vaunt, a thing wherein we feel there is some hidden want. What objects are the fountains of thy happy strain? What fields, or waves, or mountains? What shapes of sky, or plain? What love of thine own kind? What ignorance of pain? With thy clear keen joyance, languor cannot be shadow of annoyance never came near thee thou lovest but ne'er knew love's sad satiety waking or asleep thou of death must deem things more true and deep than we mortals dream or how could thy notes flow in such a crystal stream we look before and after and pine for what is not our sincerest laughter with some pain is fraught. Our sweetest sounds are those that tell of saddest thought. Yet, if we could scorn hate and pride and fear, if we were things born not to shed a tear, I know not how thy joy we ever should come near. Better than all measures of delightful sound, better than all treasures that in books are found, thy skill to poet were, thou scorner of the ground. Teach me half the gladness that thy brain must know. Such harmonious madness from my lips would flow. The world should listen then as I am listening now. Hmm. Teach me half the gladness that thy brain must know. Such harmonious madness from my lips would flow. It's the dream of every poet. Remember when we discussed why poetry with Matthew the Pruder, the poet. We talked about the pull of poetry, of good and great and lasting and enduring poetry. Why do we bother with this stuff? People, amateurs, bad poets, they think it's rhyme, right? I, I made a rhyme. It's clever. No, no, it's not impressive to find words that rhyme with one another. It's only mildly impressive. It's impressive, like doing a crossword puzzle is impressive. It's not that impressive. If we want storytelling, we can look at prose fiction, very effective at telling stories. Character development, hello novels, the kings of the that particular realm. But Matthew shared a different view. His view was that the poet entered into a state of mind with insights and music and art and genius available to him, where words spoke and sang and he or she captured that magic and translated it for the rest of us into those words. Maybe it's from the heavens. Maybe it's a muse. Maybe it's a place that humans can sometimes get to, but not all of us can get there quite. That's what poetry is when it's good. Music and words coming from, and thoughts coming from that place. And Shelley says in this poem, I want it. I want to get it. I want to get that pure, harmonious madness and let it flow from me. Unfiltered, unpremeditated, perfect, creative, not predictable, genius. That's what I want to do with my life. And here it is, coming out of this skylark's throat while he's flying. Some kind of life-affirming voice flowing out of this bright little creature. Not intellectualized, not argumentative, just joy and purity and perfection. And Shelley says, take me there, ye gods of poetry, let me sing like a skylark. Now, the parallel that comes to mind here, for those of us today, is with jazz musicians. Improvising, not puzzling over a word choice or a note, like someone who's filling in that Sudoku. I don't mean to just pick on crossword puzzles. There's other kinds of of (laughs) wordles. Not in that frame of mind, but superior craftsmen, master practitioners who then open themselves up to art and mystery, letting improvisation take them over, letting music Unpremeditated music, free and unadulterated, comes sailing out of their instruments. They are the vessel for it. And guess what? Guess what? When we're talking about jazz, we have a song called Skylark. It's one of the most famous jazz songs. It had two, two, you know, do you know Skylark? Mm. The pedigree on this thing is unbelievable. It was written by Hoagy Carmichael no slouch, and he got the melody from an improvisation by Bix Biederbeck, another non-slouch who was playing it on his trumpet, or I guess it was a cornet. Carmichael gave it to Johnny Mercer, who tried to write lyrics for it for a year. Sat on the melody for a year before finally he was able to write the lyrics after his romance with Judy Garland fell apart this is the kind of pedigree i'm talking about these are these are giants of mid-century music and jazz then johnny mercer found the words for the longing in his heart and which bix Biederbeck and Hoagie, Car- Hoagie carmichael had captured in the melody so can i just tell you who has recorded this song. I'll give you a partial list. Harry James, the Glenn Miller Orchestra, Dinah Shore, Earl Hines with Billy Eckstein, Bing Crosby, Mel Torme, The Velvet Fog, Tony Bennett, Bobby Darin, Art Blakey, Aretha Franklin, Ella Fitzgerald, Bette Midler, Stan Getz, Susanna McCorkle, Linda Ronstad, Rosemary Clooney, Cassandra Wilson, Katie Lang, Kristen Chenoweth, Bob Dylan. Singing this song, Skylark. Those lyrics are beautiful too. I'll give it. <laughs> they're up there with their poetry themselves. I'll give I'll give Shelley the nod. I'll give I'll give Skylark the song an A. I'll give Shelley an A+. How about that? The theme in both songs, is similar. You beautiful, pure being singing, can I get to where you are with that music so rich and resonant and unfiltered. The purity of music surpassing me as a poet when I have my thinking cap on. I want to be pure. I want to be musical. Okay, let's talk about Shelley and Keats. Byron always struck me as kind of a snob whenever I read about his attitude toward Keats. He didn't appreciate this cockney stepping on his poetic turf. But Shelley, who could have taken the same position, Shelley was also came from the aristocracy, but he he looked past the class differences and said, this guy is the real deal, Poet with a capital P. Keats was not all that warm toward Shelley. The two were not close friends, and initially, at least, they criticized one another's poetry too. They did meet a couple of times in London. Shelley invited Keats to come and stay with him in Italy, which Keats turned down. As Lee Hunt said, Keats did not take to Shelley as kindly as Shelley to him. Before the rejection, Shelley had written this to Marianne Hunt when he was excited. He had invited Keats, he thought Keats would take him up on it. He says, Keats' new volume, this is, quote, in his, this is the letter to Marianne Hunt. Quote, Keats' new volume has arrived. (laughs) I'm excited. (laughs) I get a little carried away, people. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Tripping all over myself here. Okay, Shelley wrote this to Marianne Hunt. Listen, you ready? (laughs) I'm like a yapping little puppy here. Okay, quote, Keats's new volume has arrived to us, and the fragment called Hyperion promises for him that he is destined to become one of the first writers of the age. His other things are imperfect enough. Where is Keats now? I am anxiously expecting him in Italy, where I shall take care to bestow every possible attention on him. I consider his a most valuable life, and I am deeply interested in his safety." I intend to be the physician both of his body and his soul to keep the one warm and to teach the other Greek and Spanish. I am aware indeed that I am nourishing a rival who will far surpass me and this is an additional motive and will be an added pleasure. End quote. That's such a wonderful, wonderful paragraph in a wonderful letter. He will far surpass me but that's a good thing. Ah, Good old Shelly. Try to be more like this Shelly, this aspect of Shelly in your life. I know. I know what you're going to say. I'm going to tell you something. I'm anticipating what you're going to Everything with me comes back to the Beatles. I get it. But this is so close to John Lennon's attitude toward Paul when they first met that I can't resist sharing the story the two had met at a village fete. John had a band, his band. He was the leader. He was singing and Paul was impressed because John was making up words on the spot. And after it was over, Paul, who was a little bit younger, hung around the group and sat down. to Talk about Skylarks. Paul McCartney, my God, the musical freak of nature. So he sits down, he's playing the piano, he's singing, he's playing the guitar, doing whatever, showing off probably, singing in multiple voices, most likely. Particular talent of his that... Skylarking voice, he's got. And John recalled later that he'd listened to Paul and thought, hmm, this guy's as good as me. So, choice to make what do I do? Keep him out of the band and never have a rival in the band, or do I let him in, make the band better, and share this lead microphone that I currently own? He chose the latter better to make the band better. Chose like Shelley. We need this poet. I'm deeply interested in his safety. I know he's dying. We all know that. He's afraid to travel. He feels sick. But I'll keep him warm and also teach him Greek and Spanish. (laughs) Make him even better. Even if it means he will surpass me. And then when Keats died, Shelley was bereft. He wrote Adonais, an elegy on the death of John Keats. It's a long poem, 53 stanzas written in a Spenserian form, but I'll just, I'm going to read five or six stanzas from it. This is 1821. Adonais is yet another Greek reference, this time to a beautiful young lad. Aphrodite saw him and fell in love, and then he was killed at a young age. We know, you know the word probably is Adonis. When we say, oh, that guy's a Greek Adonis. This is that guy. That's who we're talking about. Shelley changed the spelling. It's kind of complicated, but it was to try to get away from some of the erotic implications of another part of the story. So, Ananias: an elegy on the death of John Keats, 1821. Percy Bysshe Shelley, 1. I weep for Adonais, he is dead. Oh, weep for Adonais, Thor. Tears thaw not the frost which binds so dear a head, and thou sad hour, selected from all years to mourn our loss, rouse thy obscure compeers, and teach them thine own sorrow. Say, with me died Adonais, till the future dares forget the past. His fate and fame shall be an echo and a light unto eternity. Pass to 41. He lives, he wakes, tis death is dead, not he. Mourn not for Adonais, thou young dawn, turn all thy dew to splendor, for from thee the spirit thou lamentest is not gone. Ye caverns and ye forests cease to moan, Cease, ye faint flowers and fountains, and thou air, which, like a morning veil, thy scarf heads thrown o'er the abandoned earth, now leave it bare, even to the joyous stars which smile on its despair forty two he is made one with nature, there is heard his voice in all her music, from the moan of thunder to the song of night's sweet bird. He is a presence to be felt and known in darkness and in light, from herb and stone, spreading itself where'er that power may move which has withdrawn his being to its own, which wields the world with never-wearied love, sustains it from beneath, and kindles it above. We'll pass now to fifty-three. Why linger, why turn back, why shrink my heart? Thy hopes are gone before, from all things here they have departed. Thou shouldst now depart. A light is passed from the revolving year, and man and woman and what still is dear attracts to crush, repels to make thee wither. The soft sky smiles, the low wind whispers near. Tis Adonaius calls. Oh, hasten thither, no more let life divide what death can join together. 54. That light whose smile kindles the universe, that beauty in which all things work and move, that benediction which the eclipsing curse of birth can quench not, that sustaining love which through the web of being blindly wove by man and beast and earth and air and sea, burns bright or dim, as each are mirrors of the fire for which all thirst now beams on me, consuming the last clouds of cold mortality. 55. The breath whose might I have invoked in song descends on me. My spirit's bark is driven far from the shore, far from the trembling throng whose sails were never to the tempest given. The massy earth and sphered skies are riven. I am born darkly, fearfully afar, whilst, burning through the inmost veil of heaven, the soul of Adonais, like a star, beacons from the abode where the eternal are. It is intensely sad that history has supplied this mighty poet with what we might call a kind of cosmic rhyme, that final stanza in his elegy to his friend John Keats with its metaphor of a ship sailing into a tempest looking for light from the star of the eternal. It's a cosmic rhyme, a dark one, because Shelley soon would die himself in a ship that sailed into a tempest, a storm. When he died, he had a copy of Keats's poems in his pocket. Let's hear one more poem from 1821 before we tell the story of that shipwreck and that death. This one is very short and very pretty. It's mainly famous for its first two lines, but it's only eight lines. We can read the whole thing. Music when soft voices die by Percy Bysshe Shelley. Music when soft voices die vibrates in the memory Odors, when sweet violets sicken, live within the sense they quicken. Rose leaves, when the rose is dead, are heaped for the beloved's bed. And so thy thoughts, when thou art gone, love itself shall slumber on. What is left of us, we mortals, whether we are Ozymandias, or Keats or Shelley, or we mere mortals, we leave a trace and then a memory and the values we help to promote. Is there a legacy of us in values like happiness and goodness and joy and love? I don't mean like billiard balls as in we helped someone who remembered that and then they helped someone else and so on and our actions echo throughout time, but I mean in a quality like love. Is love stronger for us having loved and having lived, believing in love and having done what we can to foster love and contribute to it? Is the, is the storehouse of love on this planet or in this universe enhanced, strengthened, filled by what we add to it when we're here? And does that continue after we are gone? I'd like to think so, and I think Shelley did too. And so we come to Shelley's death, a month shy of his 30th birthday. This is a bit disturbed. There's some disturbing parts in this death. If you want to skip forward a few seconds, we'll wrap up with some poems. But first let's hear what happened. Shelley and a friend went out on a boat called the Don Juan, probably pronounced Don Juan. I'm assuming it was named after Byron's famous poem. They had a copy of Keats's poetry in Shelley's pocket. This was off the coast of Italy in what is now called the Gulf of Poets near Cinque Terre is more famous today. There are historic villages there, including one called Lerici or Lerici. Byron once swam across this very gulf to visit Shelley about 4.6 miles. Byron was a champion swimmer. Shelley was inspired by the landscape, which was gorgeous. But things at this moment had taken a dark turn in his life. Mary Shelley by now had lost three of her four children in infancy. She was not doing well. She became pregnant again. She did not greet that with joy. She greeted it with foreboding. She had a feeling that something, she had a premonition, something dark and disastrous was going to occur. They were there in this fishing village with their friend, Claire Claremont, Mary's stepsister, who had a daughter Allegra with Lord Byron, and Byron had placed that daughter in a in an Italian convent, and when they were there in the fishing village, the Shelleys and Claire Claremont, they received news that she had died of fever. She was only five years old. so Shelley was with these two, pregnant Mary and grieving Claire, both of whom were grieving actually nearly out of their minds with worry and grief and And he started to lose his grip on reality, too. He had violent nightmares. He would would find him in other rooms, screaming, terrifying screams. He would point at the sea and say, there, there it is again. He claimed he could see a naked child rising from the water, smiling at him, his hands clasped together in joy. I think all the death and the, sorrow and the sadness and the concern was breaking them mary had a miscarriage and when it happened she was about to die there were no doctors around none available it would take them hours to get there shelley put her into a bath of ice and forced her to stay there in the ice for 7 hours to try to slow the bleeding he sat with her while she was on that verge of death, the horrible circumstance she was in of trying to stay alive after she had lost yet another child and probably felt she had little to live for herself. After that experience, Shelley had Percy Shelley had more hallucinations. He'd wake up screaming, sharing his nightmares. Once he said he saw a man standing over Mary's bed, reaching for her throat to strangle her, And he looked at the man's face, and the face was his own. Then he saw the same man during the daytime. The man walked toward him and casually asked how much longer he meant to be content. Once in a vision, he saw their guests covered in blood and the sea flooding into the house. There's some evidence that Shelley wanted to kill himself. At this point in his life, he was trying to get prussic acid in a, a mountain that would be enough to kill oneself. In the wake of all of this, he took his boat out to sea. The boat had been modified to be faster in happier times. So Shelley could beat Byron when the two of them went on races across the bay. Sailing these were sailing boats, of course. This also made the boat, these modifications also made the boat less stable. And when they went out to sea. On this fateful night, Shelley and his friend, bad weather moved in, and this boat, this modified boat, this risky, speedy boat, suddenly was in trouble. Another captain went out to save them, and he pulled alongside, and he offered to take Shelley and his companion to safety, but Shelley refused to accept the help, and later accounts had it that he also stopped his companion from going to, put his hand on his arm and said no. Unfortunately, then the boat uh, capsized in the storm, killing Shelley and his friend. Ten days later, their bodies were found. Shelley's face and hands had been eaten away, and he was recognizable only by his clothing and the copy of Keats that he had in his pocket. Italy had quarantine regulations, so the bodies were buried in the sand, and then a month later, Lord Byron and Lee Hunt and some others had Shelley's body dug up and they burned his body on the sand. For some reason, Shelley's heart didn't burn, refused to burn. It was said the heart was then given to Mary Shelley and she wrapped it in silk and kept it near her writing desk for the rest of her life. So that's it for Shelley's life. But as he anticipated, a poet lives on through his or her works. For much of this, he and we owe a debt to his wife Mary, who oversaw a publication of his poetry, including many poems that had not yet been in print. We will close with two of those poems today, published posthumously. They're both about the moon. Both are sensationally inventive. The power of Shelley's imagination in these poems is kind of at a peak. To come up with one of these About the moon would be the poem of a lifetime, I think. To have them both by a man who also wrote so much else and who died not even at the age of 30 gives a sense of just how gifted Percy Bysshe Shelley was. This was first published in 1824, The Waning Moon. And like a dying lady, lean and pale, who totters forth, Wrapped in a gauzy veil out of her chamber, led by the insane and feeble wanderings of her fading brain, the moon arose up in the murky east, a white and shapeless mass. (laughs) There it is. The moon, like a dying lady in a gauzy veil, tottering out of her chamber, half-mad, feeble brain coming out. Is that what you see when you look at the moon? Well... I guess it's, I guess it might be what I see now on certain nights in when I'm looking in the murky east. And then, ah, second poem Here's the moon. Why is it pale? Why do you think the moon is pale? Maybe because it's lonely and a bit judgmental. If you ever think about the circumstances of the moon, well, I didn't really think about what it was like to be a cloud, how the stars would be buzzing around you like a swarm of bees until I read Shelley. I'll think about clouds differently thanks to that poem, The Cloud. I will now also think of the paleness of the moon differently thanks to this one, Art Thou Pale for Weariness, 1824, posthumous publication. Art Thou Pale for Weariness of Climbing Heaven, and gazing on the earth, wandering companionless among the stars that have a different birth, and ever-changing like a joyless eye that finds no object worth its constancy. Percy Shelley had a mind that climbed to heaven and gazed on the earth. He was not companionless, exactly. He was often with friends, and he was magnanimous toward them, and he found love and enmity and was never really alone except that he was alone, like all poets who turn inward into their own genius, the ones who try to capture what's individual about their insights and endeavors and bring those visions to us. Steeped in history and myth, in love with beauty and nature, bombarded by feelings of justice and righteous indignation, he lived like a flawed gem, full of nicks here and there, but incalculably valuable, and voluble too, like those silver-throated skylarks that stopped him in his tracks. A flawed gem, dazzling and shiny, and as enduring as his heart proved to be, resisting decay, impervious to fire, still here with us, for now at least, as the lone and level sands stretch far away okay there we go that's Percy Shelley one of the greats speaking of which I hope you are being as great as you can be like Shelley I try to be though I often come up short but there's value in the trying we have some good episodes coming up maybe some great ones the Greeks with Professor Josiah Ober next week. That is definitely a good conversation and our Kurt Vonnegut episode will finally, the one with Christina Jarvis, will finally see the light of day publishing schedule permitting Two great guests. So please do subscribe and like and tell all your friends about the History of Literature podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening and we'll see you next time.